Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, March 1st. We begin with a look at the details surrounding the newly released provincial budget. We get reaction from Mount Royal University political science professor Dwayne Bratt. Is the latest budget in the best public interest or just a political posturing tool for the UCP government ahead of the spring provincial election? We discuss with Bradley LaFortune, executive director of Public Interest Alberta. And finally, artificial intelligence will forever change the way students are graded. So how can our education system keep up with changing technology and safeguard against cheating on exams and assignments? We get the thoughts of Louis Volante, professor of education governance at Brock University. Will the latest provincial budget help sway voters ahead of the upcoming provincial election? Joining us to break down the budget and state of politics in Alberta is Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for being with us. UCP obviously tabling the budget yesterday. Big news, especially for someone like you, right? So what was your takeaway from the, the budget and, and, and kind of the news that came through? Well, I, I mean, it's clear that we're in election mode and, mm-hmm. and have been for four months because this was uh, an election budget. If you wanted more spending on things like health care and education, that was in there. If you wanted debt repayment, that was in there. And if you wanted uh, money put into the Heritage Savings Fund, that was in there. They were able to do all of that because uh, revenues are still high. Um, and as a result, there's something in here for everybody. But the one thing, when you say election budget, Dwayne, to me, this is, if you put it in a football <coughs> analogy, this is the, hey, are we going to go for the TD? Are we going to make the safe bet and try to kick that field goal in the sense that it wasn't, you know, everybody gets a, a big screen TV for the house. It wasn't uh, the Danielle Bucks. Um, it was prudent at this point, kind of a safe election budget, I think. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I don't think that was the case. I mean, even though resource revenue had dropped and even though overall revenue um, had dropped, spending increased by almost $6 billion from last year. That is a, that's a huge jump. Uh, and you can do that when you still have over $18 billion in, in resource revenue. So maybe not a full big screen TV, but still a brand new TV, you know, <laughs> uh, is the way that I would uh, I would put it there. Um, and so you, you wonder if, uh, you know, the conservative think tanks that, that Smith was once part of, what they would think of this, uh, because uh, spending is way above uh, inflation and, and population growth. And that's with high inflation. Like uh, spending is up 10%, but they're the ones in saying, oh, by the way, she also paid down debt. And oh, oh, by the way, uh, they put money into the Heritage Savings Fund. And oh, by the way, they're going to introduce legislation demanding balanced budgets. So the fiscal conservatives are happy. And the ordinary voter that wants to see new schools built and new nurses hired uh, and lower child care fees, they're also getting that too. And so money solves an awful lot of problems. Ain't that the truth? So, Dwayne, you know, as you try to appease everybody then with a budget like this, do you think that it'll move the needle in the UCP's favor as we're less than 90 days away from a provincial election now? It it really constrains the NDP attacks. And you could see yesterday and even so I was up in Edmonton Monday and Tuesday. Um, I had to get back just before they had, <laughs> the budget was released, so I did not stay for the budget speech. And already you heard the NDP working on their, their lines. 
But it's tough to say that you needed more spending uh, when, as I said, spending went up 10%. Um, so what they're falling back on is uh, some of the spending ends in June, just after the election. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> they're, they're arguing that there's issues of trust here. So that, that was, there was a big ramp up this year for an election. But once the election is over, you're going to discover that they didn't actually buy you that big screen TV. They leased it for a year. <laughs> and uh, the repo man showing up uh, to take your TV away. Uh, I, I think that's <clears throat> that's how the NDP is going to play this. But it's tough. that's a tough argument to make. I want to ask you about this because we did. You say there was not as much fodder for the NDP to, to, to take shots at. But we inevitably, uh, we played the remarks of, of course, official NDP leader and <laughs> official leader of the opposition, Rachel Notley. And we got these texts, these sorts of texts in. Good morning, Andrew and Sue. Or Sue and Andrew, to be politically correct. <laughs> May I ask why Notley is speaking? Did it turn into Notley programming? Oh, she just finished. Wow. What the heck was that all about? Was talking on the phone and she is droning on. Um, we always, you know, counter these with she is the leader of the opposition. Can you talk about the process and how people might not want to, you know, watch the game if their team isn't playing, but the importance of somebody like a Rachel Notley in our government? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's the budget. So who gets front stage, right? It is the finance minister. It is the premier. And then you get the responses, the responses from interest groups, the responses from the mayor, the responses from the leader of the opposition. But they're not the focus. Their focus, yesterday uh, was Travis Taves' day and his cowboy boots, right? You don't have photo ops of Rachel Notley or um, uh, Shannon Phillips going out and getting new shoes. The focus is on the government. What this was was a response, and there should be a response to the budget. That's part of the democratic process. And is it important? I mean, we for so long in this province really didn't have an official opposition. So to have the voice of Rachel Notley, whether you agree with she or her party, to have an opposition voice kind of keep the government in check once in a while, isn't that important? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are in a two-party system right now. And there are people who go, well, what about the Liberals and what about the Alberta Party? And I kind of say, well, yeah, what what about them? Uh But then I say, by the way, we had a one-party system in this province for a century. So going from one party to two parties is actually a really big improvement. And and that's how it should be. You should have a government, and you should have a government in waiting that challenges. That's a credible challenger. We always had challenges in the PC dynasty days, but it wasn't seen as a credible uh, alternative. 89, 89 days is what I see here, uh, you know, during the l- longest. We could have an election earlier than May 29th, but 89 days from today, if the 29th remains true. Uh, obviously, the UCP faithful will remain faithful, but was this budget enough to, to sway the needle for those people who are perhaps on the fence? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, in, it was categorized as a good news budget. I think it was. And they, they carefully rolled out and pre-announced things. Usually we have uh, budget secrecy, <clears throat> but we knew about money uh, for health care, and we knew about money, uh, you know, tuition freezes for, for post-secondary. We knew about money for the Telespark well in advance of the, the budget, and that's because the UCP didn't want it to be a one- or two-day news story. They wanted it a week-long affair. 
Um, and so Calgary remains the battleground. What I was surprised at is what was not in here. There was no big shiny object for the city of Calgary. <clears throat> there was nothing about an arena deal. There was no new money for an LRT. Um, there was some money for a feasibility study on a train from the airport to uh, uh, to downtown. Mm-hmm. But that was really about it. And given that there's probably 25 battleground ridings in the entire province, and 20 of those are in the city of Calgary, uh, that I, I had guessed uh, that there would have been some big shiny object for Calgary, and that was not in the budget. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Always love chatting with you, Dwayne. Okay. Thanks, Sue. Take care. Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. The UCP tabling the latest provincial budget yesterday, promising money for Alberta's education system, health care and debt repayment. Is money being spent wisely and is it in the best public interest? Joining us to talk about it is Bradley LaFortune, executive director of Public Interest Alberta. Good morning to you, Brad. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Appreciate your time. Overall, Brad, did you think that this was a good news budget for us? Well, I think the government obviously wants to sell it as a good news budget. But what I was hoping to see and what our members were hoping to see was more of a plan to reinvest in the public services that had been cut over the past four years going through COVID and through some tough times in the economy. So uh, it really depends on who you're listening to. I think in the next couple of days, we'll hear more from, you know, various actors in the political scene. But, you know, from our perspective, what we saw is a budget that really looks and sounds like a pre-election budget. Um, and so uh, while there are, you know, some some goodies for uh, for Albertans and, and different folks, what we really didn't see is a plan to reinvest in public services that were cut over the past four years. Saw some goodies, most definitely, Bradley, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see it as frivolous and over the top. Uh, did you see anything as frivolous or unnecessary? No, I don't think it was frivolous or unnecessary. I mean, there's a plan to to pay back some of the, the debt um, and to reinvest in the Heritage Savings Plan. I believe it was about $2 billion. Um, they also, you know, reinvested in, in health care after a few tough years, um, you know, looking at uh, increasing the number of doctors that are going to be graduating in the province. And so, um, you know, from... An objective point of view, especially given that, you know, the last four years have been really tough, um, it it certainly isn't a frivolous budget. Um, No, I couldn't say that. Uh, Brad, you've been quoted as saying that we've watched them, the UCP government, mishandle everything from COVID response to the affordability crisis. So overall, would you say that this just was not what you were hoping for in terms of what you got in the budget? Fundamentally, yeah, it wasn't what we were hoping for on a few key areas. So number one being healthcare, the second being education, and number three being affordability. So on healthcare, we see that, you know, um, obviously, I think that if you've been to, you know, a primary care clinic or you're looking for a family doctor, you had to, you know, unfortunately visit the hospital in the past few months, there's a real crunch in the workforce and accessibility for, you know, primary care and urgent care in this province. Um, and quite frankly, you know, we would have liked to have seen, you know, at least uh, reinvestment keeping up with population growth and inflation, especially after the last four years of cuts on education. 
Um, you know, this government talks a lot about choice and education, but what we're seeing is more investment in charter and private school construction than in public school construction and modernization. So that's a big concern for us as well. And then the third thing, when it comes to affordability, I mean, we're all, I think, pretty happy to see there's some relief for, you know, working people and average Albertans when it comes to those affordability payments and utility relief and, and the gas tax rebate. But all of those things are set to end really shortly after the election. And so I guess on the affordability question, it really comes down to what's our long-term plan to get, you know, affordability under control in Alberta um, beyond the next, you know, three or four months. That's a big concern for us as well. You mentioned, of course, the affordability programs coming to the end, uh, coming to an end after the election. Uh, on the topic of the election, with 89 days away, you say this was an election-friendly budget, uh, but was it enough to move the needle to change perhaps the outcome of the election? What are your thoughts from your viewpoint? Well, you know, it's interesting. I always find that, you know, budgets always take a few days to go through. There's hundreds of hundreds of pages of estimates. So I know everyone, including, you know, ourselves are going to be going over the details over the next couple of days. I but my gut tells me that while they they're really trying to um, be everything to everyone in this budget, um, I don't think that Albertans are really going to feel the story that they're trying to tell in this budget, that it's a good news budget for everyone and that we're turning the corner, you know, after a few hard years when it comes to, um, you know, COVID and, and really strained economy. Um, I, I just don't, I don't see it, you know, and I think that, you know, Albertans are, are, are pretty, you know, practical and, and, and wise to, you know, how these, these kinds of election cycles go. And so, you know, I think it's going to be a tough sell for the government, quite frankly. Um, obviously, they're trying to, you know, make the case that uh, they're really, you know, concerned about affordability and, and, and health care as their two top priorities. But at the end of the day, I think the proof is really in the pocketbooks of Albertans. And, and there's a lot of Albertans that we're hearing from in Calgary and across the province who are just finding it harder and harder to make ends meet in this current reality. Thanks so much for your perspective, Brad. Appreciate it this morning. Thanks so much. Have a good day, guys. You Take too. Care. Bradley LaFortune, Executive Director of Public Interest Alberta. You can go to PIAlberta.org. We've been talking a lot about artificial intelligence on the program and the potential to change the way we work. It could also be a new avenue for students to cheat. So how can our education system keep up with a new avenue for students to find ways to do things nefariously? Joining us to discuss how ChatGPT could change the way students are graded is Louis Vellante, Professor of Education Governance and Policy Anal Analysis at Brock University and President of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education. Good morning to you, Louis. Good morning. First of all, you must have two business cards to write all these things down on. Boy, that's incredible. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, let's talk about this. The main problem with traditional methods of grading and the curveball AI will throw at it, what, what, what do you see this being the, the biggest issue? Probably the the single biggest challenge will be for the undergraduate first and second year courses where students could be in a class with three, four, 500 people. And um, in those types of um, classes, particularly the ones that are in the social sciences and humanities, they tend to get the traditional uh, essay assignments, you know, at some point in the course. So when you're dealing with such large numbers, it's really difficult for and it's impossible, essentially, for 
the professor to actually know their individual students, right? I think with ChatGPT and if a student's using it in a high school class of 15, the teachers develop that sort of rapport with the student. They kind of know what they're capable of, what they're not capable of. But when you're dealing with very large undergraduate course uh, class sizes, particularly first and second year, there's going to be students that use it. And um, the software that's available right now in order to detect it is not that well developed. So I think this creates an opportunity for us to think about how can we change the way we actually assess students so that it becomes less of a, a factor in terms of academic integrity. And Professor, how would we flip that on its head then, the traditional methods of, of teaching and grading? C- could chat GPT actually help prevent cheating in the long run? I think so. I mean, you know, there's different schools of thought on this, and that's something I've written about. One school of thought is to outright ban it, which I think is is a futile exercise. Mm-hmm. I think it's already out there. It's being used. I don't know if the listeners are aware, but I mean, They've run simulations where ChatGPT has passed the bar exam in a particular state. It passed medical school exams. Um, It's passed national assessments. So, you know, it does have that capability. And another point I I do want to make about this is that, you know, ChatGPT, if you do use it, it's not going to guarantee you an A+. In fact, most of the studies that are out there, and it's it's a quite it's a new field. Most of the the uses of ChatGPT that have been graded by a third person that don't know if it's a student or it's a AI application are giving it like a B minus as an example. But I think going back to your original question, absolutely, I think it creates an opportunity for us to think about how we do assessment differently. Uh, one thing I don't like is this one and done traditional essay where you know there's a list of topics or you can pick something and then hand it in i mean those have been susceptible to contract cheating for Mm -hmm. you know a long time contract cheating is where a student buys a a, a, an essay that's already pre-done right and there's some estimates that over seventy thousand students um, have used contract cheating across canada so you know ai is another layer to this But I do think people need to understand, you know, with every sort of iteration of new technology, there's always been resistance. There was resistance to using a calculator in a class. There's been resistance to Grammarly. And now universities um, actually give students access to Grammarly uh, uh, when they register within the institution. So we need to figure out how to incorporate AI in such a way where we can still maintain academic standards but also in a way that allows us to actually have valid assessment. Well, and here we go. Well, by the way, a, a B minus. I would be happy. That would be a step up from for me, Professor. Not everybody's happy with no, a B minus. I bet. No, I know. But in my case, I didn't have to do the work, and my grades would jump up. I, I can see the appeal. But is there ways that we can use this AI to really help the students out? You know, help them with some feedback, perhaps help them get on the the right, uh, you know, track, if you will, when it comes to a a certain course. Is there ways that it could be used as a positive? Yeah, there are already professors out there using it. So, um, there, you know, you have examples of it being used in graduate programming. So an MBA program, you have undergraduate uh, professors using it where they're actually requiring students to generate a portion of the essay using um, the chat GPT and then they look at how can you modify what you have and then work 
to look at the initial product versus what that product looks like at the end of the day and also have a frank discussion around you know what seems appropriate and inappropriate in relation to this and i think that's the prudent approach the prudent approach is to actually recognize that it's already out there frankly the genie's out of the bottle high school students are using it university students are using it and now what we're seeing is you have schools systems and you have universities having quote-unquote emergency meetings to figure out let's generate some sort of policy so that everybody's on a level playing field when it comes to this type of technology and and chat gpt is just one type of language model there's others that exist out there yeah, you know, when you say the genie's out of the bottle, that's exactly I was thinking, you know, if you can't beat him, join him. So you might as well acknowledge that it's there, incorporate it somehow. In your article in the conversation, there was also discussion about, you know, trying to prevent cheating by generating unique questions and answers for each student. That would seem to be a whole lot of work, though. Is that even a possibility? Well, I mean, you know, for the listeners out there, we've gone from elite uh, university education being an elite um, sort of uh, opportunity for students, meaning a very small percentage, to mass education, to now what Canada is in a, has been for the last 15 years in an area of what we refer to as universal access. That means that more than 50% of grade 12 students move on to post-secondary education. We're the first country in the world to move to this 50% plus one status. We're way above that now. We're pushing close to 60%. Um, so we have a lot more students going into university. So, you know, the undergraduate courses now, and I've said this already, are, can be quite large, right? Um, so that's something for us to keep in mind. It can be done, but we've been systematically um, sort of increasing the per pupil cost that's transferred to students in um, university education across the, uh, across the country. So, you know, our per pupil funding is down. Um, students pay a larger per relative percentage of what their university education costs. And because of that, where I'm going with this is that we've held on to very traditional forms of assessment that are cost effective but aren't the most valid. So as an example, you're a journalist, you're talking to me right now. In order to be effective at your job, you need to read, write, speak and listen. You also need to be able to, you know, do some research. You did some research for this actual interview today. And you know, imagine a stu student in journalism school that's just doing multiple choice questions in their first and second year. Wouldn't it be more valid for them to actually simulate an interview that we're doing right now mm -hmm. and present that work in front of uh, their their colleagues and their students, and then get feedback on that. But that costs more money because that's authentic assessment. That's the assessment that where you're showing what you know, as opposed to, you know, um, no, you know, one is about demonstrating your knowledge, another is about knowing particular discrete facts, etc. So, I mean, this idea of traditional assessment, paper and pencil versus authentic assessment, it's been in the literature. It's been around for a long time. And we all agree that moving towards more authentic forms of assessment is very important for students. It's important for journalism students, medical students, you name it. I can give you various applications. You pick any subject and I'll give you an application. But the point is, is that if we're reliant on traditional assessment, then we're also going to have students that are going to use things like chat GPT because the assessment 
that they're exposed to rewards them for that. Yeah. Well, we need to actually change the assessment as well. I'm not saying to get rid of ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. I'm also arguing that we change the type of assessment that we do in universities yeah. and high schools. We're going to have to leave it there for time, uh, but thank you so much. Super timely topic, and it is uh, just the way of the world right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good, uh, good day. You too. That is Louis Volante, Professor Education Governance and Pol uh, Policy Analysis at Brock University and also the Canadian Society for the Study of Education, and he's the president there.